Do you ever find yourself yearning to look beyond the obvious and dreaming about what's possible in your next chapter? Welcome to the Next Chapter Experience. I'm your host, Jeanette Blissett, former corporate executive who turned the page to become a best-selling author, entrepreneur, designer, and lifestyle business consultant. Episodes feature me and a kaleidoscope of guests who share their journeys with wit, candor, and humor, breathing life into real talks about things that matter most. I believe we all have a fire burning within us, waiting to be unleashed and shared with the world. It may just be a matter of time. So let's get together, turn the page, and get this adventure started. Welcome to the Next Chapter Experience. I'm your host, Jeanette Blissett, and today's guest is Jim Fuller. Jim has lived a very colorful and global life. From barefoot backpacker to corporate leader, fire dancer, and traditional tattooist, he's been a teacher, a motorcycle courier, massage and flexology to labor and travel consultant. He has literally traveled and lived around the globe. He is on a mission to help people create habitual perspectives and practices that bring ease, flow, and success. Jim believes conscious communication is important and authenticity is key. And he talks about that in his book, The Art of Conscious Communication for Thoughtful Men. Jim, I have to tell you, I just want to let you know, I've been reading it, and I do believe that your book is not just for men. Yeah, you're right. Thanks for pointing that out, Jeanette. It's interesting. I've been having emails from women around the world saying, thank you for writing this book. Now I'm generalizing here. Generally speaking, women are more open to and interested in personal development and growth. A lot of men just don't even think about it. They're too busy. Their minds are elsewhere. So it's usually it's women that are picking the book up off the shelves or downloading it and reading it and then trying to get the men in their lives to have a look at it. You know what I found interesting about the art of conscious communication for thoughtful men is that I've been having this conversation with my nephew. There was a bit of a transition as to how he talked to his crew. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that I was hearing a lot of love you, man, love yeah. you, man. And I thought, uh-huh. where is that coming from? So I yeah. finally asked, and I said, I'm really surprised that you guys talk about that so openly, that meaning expressing how you feel about each other. And his yeah. response to me was that he was simply trying to, to develop into a better person than who he was when he was in his 20s. And yeah. it felt like it was time for them to actually start to take off some of the armor and let each wow. other know how they were feeling. And I thought wow. that was just profound. Oh, that's beautiful. What a lovely man. Yeah, he's really developing into this person. So I read this in your prologue. It says, in the absence of communication, there is only disconnect and distance. There can be no collaboration, no communion, no resolution. In that void, we perish. And it's so true. You also go on in one of your chapters to talk about what's going on politically in this country and in the world in general with identity politics and folks shouting across the aisle to the other who opposes their thought processes and not really communicating with each other. So that struck me as well. It's frustrating. I'm the eternal optimist and I have this deep love for humanity. I can't help it. It's just very frustrating at the same time watching the dysfunctions 
of people. And we identify with our ideas. We identify with our political view or our religious view. Our ideology becomes part of who we think we are. And we are very defensive of our sense of identity and sometimes beyond rational, beyond reason, beyond connection and communion. And so unfortunately, some powers at play, and I'm not really that interested in the conspiracy theories behind who's doing it. That's not my place of interest, but we are being divided and it's red and blue or black and white or pro-choice, pro-life or pro-vax, anti-vax, whatever we can be divided on, the powers at play are using that. And, and then so people are just shouting at each other, like you said, across the aisle, and it's not actually helping. Now, I understand if someone has a cause that they believe in and they want to make the world a better place and they want to speak up about that, I fully support that. But if you're just shouting at your opposition and trying to cancel them on Twitter, you're not actually progressing the cause. You're not actually helping humanity evolve and come to a better place. And communication, it's interesting, Jeanette, communication actually means a sharing it means coming to an understanding. And that requires a curiosity, it requires leaning in and listening and seeking to understand. So what I'm trying to practice in my own personal life and as a father and a coach, what I'm trying to practice and encourage is that if I'm in a conversation and you have a different point of view to me, that's a wonderful sign. That's an opportunity for me to go, oh, wow, I don't see it like that. Let me lean in and really seek to understand. I'd love to know where you're coming from because that can only broaden my horizons. That can only make my understanding elevated or expanded, right? So rather than getting all defensive and saying, I'm going to prove you wrong, in those moments, I'm like, wow, I'm so curious. Jeanette, can you please help me understand your point of view? I love that. I laugh because sometimes it borders on the ridiculous. However, I'm curious. This might cancel out the curiosity from a certain perspective. I'm curious as to what got them to that place where they believe what they're saying is actually helpful. Yeah. And I try not to be cynical about it, but to your point, being open and seeking first to understand, even if it's preposterous, just to understand the person and where they're coming from, maybe not so much their information, it informs me on who they are. Yeah, that's right. And seeking to understand doesn't mean that I will always agree with you. We can sit down and have a cup of tea and talk if I'm sitting with someone who believes that the earth is flat. I can sit there and with compassion and love for them as a human, I'm still not going to agree with them at the end that the earth's flat because it's just not. (laughs) In fact, I'll probably change the subject because it'll frustrate me that they believe such a crazy idea where I'll change the subject to something that we've got in common, to the love of our children, to the fact that we've both need food and shelter and we both need air and water, that we both have the same color blood. We both have hearts that beat and lungs that breathe. Can we talk about something we've got in common for a second, please? I'm never going to agree with you that the earth's flat. (laughs) I'm just not, but that's okay. And if you want to continue believing the earth's flat, as crazy as that is, that's okay too. And there are a lot of things that I read in your book that made me think about the journey that you've had. So I wanted to ask you, in your journey, in I believe the second chapter, you talk about needing to leave and being mm. out of communication so that you can tap into self, mm. take that journey. Can you give us a bit of a perspective of what might have been going on in your life when you began to break out and really start to seek to discover who you were relative Mm. to the parental strings 
Yeah. In terms of breaking out from the parental strings, as soon as I finished high school at the age of 18, I couldn't get far enough away. I was flying to the other side of the world and I was really wanting to establish a sense of independence. And at the time I was reacting against my father, despite the fact that I loved him dearly. I also didn't want to be him. And there's there's a whole bunch of psychology behind that. But yeah, I couldn't get far enough away. So I did that and I traveled a lot throughout my twenties. I did fall in love when I was 19 and, and we were together for seven years. I even proposed to her and we were engaged. We didn't actually end up getting married, which I think with the benefit of hindsight was a good thing because we weren't meant to be the ones to spend our lives together. But really the deepest journey on my own and the time where I really spent an extended period of time in contemplation was in my late 20s, when at the age of 27, 28. And I ended up having some sort of identity crisis. And because we identify with things in our life, so we identify as partner. I'm her husband or fiance, or we identify with the work we do. At the time, I'd been an actor or a singer-songwriter, and we identify with these roles. And when those roles are taken away from us, we can have an identity crisis, which is what I had in my late 20s. And my self-esteem and my sense of self-worth had really hit a very low point. I had a stutter. I used to look in the mirror and just see this ugly human There was a lot of self-loathing. There was drug abuse. It wasn't a pretty time. And then my sister came to, I was living in London at the time, and my sister came to London and saw me in the state that I was in. And she was like, wow, you're not in a good place. Remember, you were saving up to go and travel in India again. I had a love affair with India. I still do. And I said, oh, that's right. And so I got the money, saved up enough money, and I got on a plane and I got to India. And I realized when I was in India that I had no idea really who I was or what I was doing or what I wanted to do. And so I I ran this experiment. I said to myself, I said, you know what, I'm going to run an experiment. I'm not going to have any design on the future at all. And when I meet people and they say, hi, who are you? I'll say, Jem. And they'll say, what do you do? Because that's what everyone asks. What do you do? And I just started saying, I travel. I'm just exploring. I'm just traveling. That's what I do. And I ran this experiment and it ended up being a year of wandering around the Indian subcontinent, mainly barefoot. I had long dreadlocks. I had a very small bag with not many belongings. I spent a lot of time living outdoors and cooking on a fire. And it became the most remarkable spiritual year of flow. It was incredible. The flow was just beautiful. And I spent a lot of time alone, a lot of time in contemplation and redesigning this sense of self, which wasn't reliant on the roles that we play. Interesting because when we hear the phrase having an identity crisis or for many men, a midlife crisis, you hear Mm. that term a lot and Mm. has some connotations to either reliving your childhood or reliving days when you're maybe unattached and didn't have as many responsibilities. And then you're trying to live this life. You buy the sports Mm. car and uh, you're running around like you're 20 something years old. (laughs) (laughs) So when I read the identity crisis, I was like, oh my God. But in your particular case, how you talk about it in your book is that it can be a good thing. Yeah, my midlife crisis. So that was in my 20s. And then I had kids, became a father, got married, had kids and thought I need to provide. So I got a job and I went from being super alternative, kind of punk, hippie, anti-establishment alternative. And then I ended up in a suit and a tie. And all of my 
family and friends were like, what are you doing? I said, and I said, I have to provide for these kids. So I was wearing a shirt and a tie for eight years and I climbed the corporate ladder and I played that game and I forgot who I was and I got lost in this, buying in this corporate world, making a lot of money and working really hard, but, but also moving away from my core values. And during that period, my father and my youngest brother both died and I started drinking a lot of alcohol and working hard, but drinking at night and becoming this person that I wasn't meant to be that I wasn't aligned with, but I was caught up in what I thought I had to do. And so then I did have, I was lucky enough to have, now people call it a midlife crisis. I was in my early forties. I call it my midlife awakening and I had to hit rock bottom. I had to lose everything. So I lost my marriage. I lost my career. I lost my house. I lost all my belongings. The only thing I kept were my two boys. They were quite young at the time. So week on, week off, their mum and I, we separated very amicably. There was no lawyers. There was no fighting. There was no nothing. I just took all the debt and I gave her everything else. And we went into week on, week off with our kids. And that was close to 10 years ago. And so I had nothing. And I really had the opportunity to design and then to nourish and cultivate this relationship with self, with myself, that came from radical self-acceptance, self-love, self-compassion, self-okayness, so that I could then get out of my way, get out of my own way and start serving and start being a better father and a better son and now a better partner with my beautiful woman who we have a ridiculously conscious relationship, which is lovely, and a better coach and everything. So my life got a whole lot better starting about 10 years ago. That's a beautiful thing. I think it's chapter three of your book. You talk about the reason why there are certain things in your life that trigger you. You talk about there are three buckets that you can put these things in. Control, influence, and accept. It definitely applies. I think anyone, if they can embrace some of that thought process, it might give them more of an understanding of how to spend their energy in the right place. Yeah, exactly. That's what it's really great for. It's a really wonderful tool to make sure that we're not wasting our mental emotional energy unnecessarily. Because in any given day, we've only got so much energy. And at the end of the day, we're depleted and we need to sleep. We need food and water and sleep. And so we don't have a spare energy to waste. <laughs> I think it's if we can be more clever about where we're putting our mental emotional energy, I think that's a good thing. And this acronym CIA, which I didn't come up with and I in the book I've to share a couple that came up with this, I think in back in the nineteen eighties. But CIA, obviously not the American spy organization, but CIA is an acronym and C stands for control, like you said. I stands for influence and A stands for accept. So when I've been triggered or if I'm worrying about something, if I find myself in any sort of angst, frustration, then I'll look at that which I'm frustrated about and I'll put it into one of those three categories. Can I control this thing? If I can control it, if it's within my control, then I'm going to give it everything I've got to make it better to amend it, improve it, or get rid of it if I've got control over it. But most things, and especially everything externally, we can't actually control. So if I can't control it, I'll look at it and say, have I got any influence over this particular thing? And then I'll get quite specific. If I think I've got 10% influence, it only gets 10% of my worry. If I think I've got 80% influence, it gets 80% of my angst. And if I can't control it and I've got no influence over it, it goes straight into the accept basket. And when something's in the accept basket, it gets nothing. I'm not going to give it any of my energy. I'm going to fully just accept it. And there's a massive chunk of stuff that can go straight into the accept basket. And that's everything in the past. 
can't control it. It's happened. Can't influence it. It's done, right? So I am going to accept everything that's happened in the past. Now, the practice itself is simple, but it's not easy because we have these complex, persistent monkey brains and we put something in the accept basket and we'll go, that's okay. The way she spoke to me yesterday, I'm just going to accept it. It wasn't nice. It was actually pretty nasty, but it happened. So I'm going to accept that it happened. And I'll go, okay, put that in the accept basket. And then an hour later, you're tripping over it again. You're going, yeah, but she shouldn't have spoken to me like this. And you're getting all frustrated again. And you go, oh, whoa, hang on, back in the accept basket. Maybe two hours later, again, yeah, but she shouldn't have spoken. Like we're still back in the accept basket. And what I've found, Jeanette, is that like anything, when we practice it over time, we get better at it. And it's interesting with the neuroplasticity and the way our neurons end up, quote unquote, wiring together with repetition, as you practice acceptance over time, you get better at it. When I put something in the accept basket now, I don't think about it again. And it's it's fascinating. I find it fascinating that we can use the plasticity of the neurology of our brains, our minds, and we can improve the quality. We can curate the quality of our mind. I think that's beautiful. It is beautiful. I think that I have had that practice somewhat unconsciously for a really long time. Uh. From a perspective of childhood influences or impact, where I had no control over no. any of it. So that yeah. has been pretty easy for me. However, the more recent day-to-day occurrences where you find yourself ruminating over and over again, the practice becomes real now. Yeah. I find it really wonderful in terms of our relationship with self, which in the book I also say is the place to start. And it's not because I think that it's important for us to become narcissistic and self-absorbed and all through my life, it's all about me. It's actually the opposite. I believe that when we get to a place of self-okayness, then it doesn't need to be about me anymore and I can make it about everybody else. But to get there, there are some steps and there are some habitual practices that we set up in our life to, I use the word curate, to keep curating this relationship with self. And the initial step in this is radical self-acceptance because we're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. I should look more like her, or I should be faster like him, or I should be smarter like him, or I should have as much money as her. We compare ourselves all the time. And it's pathway to disappointment when you continue always comparing yourself to other people. That's why one of the negative things about social media is, and especially for our young kids, but for everybody, always comparing themselves to an Instagram feed. But in actual fact, the actual reality is that you are exactly who you're supposed to be. That's the reality. It was very refreshing when I read that and it gave me a sense of calm and peace. I said to myself, it's okay. Yeah. And I love, I don't know if you've come across Byron Katie's work. Byron Katie wrote the book, Loving What Is. And she, she says, I love this quote from her. She says, you can fight with reality if you want to. Reality will win only a hundred percent of the time. So if you and I could take a snapshot in time, if we could freeze time, then you are exactly who you're supposed to be, apparently, because there you are, just the way you are. And some people say, well, does that mean that I become complacent and therefore I'm not going to seek to improve or grow or evolve? No, I'm not talking about the future. By all means, as each day comes, if you are driven to improve and to evolve and to grow as a person, please, that's beautiful. I'm just talking about right here, right now. You're exactly enough. And this understanding for me was life-changing because before I understood this and then convinced myself of this, I had a background belief that I wasn't good enough. And so therefore I started to attract 
that to my life. I would look for evidence to back up that I wasn't good enough. If I ever started to get successful, I would sabotage it because on some deeper level, I didn't believe I, I was worthy of it. The imposter syndrome would come in. We all know about the imposter syndrome. Do I really deserve all this success? Surely not. And that comes from this belief that I'm not good enough. And so when I changed that and then went to work actually wiring that in and making it become reflex thought, a belief, my whole life changed. I would agree because yeah. I've experienced that. And it puts a smile on my face now, but going through those years where there was that self-doubt and being a person of color, uh-huh. sometimes there is a belief that you don't get the breaks because of the color of your skin, because you're a woman and that type of thing. However, in my lifetime, it was more about maybe I'm just not good enough because yeah. I come from this environment or this background. And because of that, they're yeah. treating me this way. Of course, everybody has their own agenda and I just didn't know what the agenda was, but I never allowed that to get in the way, developing and expanding my perspective on things and just kept on yeah. pushing through and then got to a place where I said, you know, I am what I am and y'all got to deal with it. And it's interesting, isn't it? That when we get to this place of understanding, we start to realize nobody else is really that concerned about you. They're all just trying to figure out their own lives. And in the past, we think, oh, they were doing that to me. They weren't actually doing it to you per se. They were doing it to their projection of you and their projection of you is to do with their biases, their beliefs, their fears, their background, their stuff. It's all their stuff. And when someone treats you in a particular way, they can only perceive you in their mind. They can't actually see the pure version of you. They can only see their version of you. If we got 10 people in a room, Jeanette, who know you and we ask them to describe you, you'll get 10 slightly different versions of who you are because they can only perceive you through their filtering system. And our filtering system is very complex. For example... Just say you and I went to a networking event together and we were standing in the room and someone walked past us who was wearing a perfume that an abusive auntie of mine used to wear when I was two years old or three years old. And this auntie used to wear this perfume and she was abusive to me, right? Now I've forgotten that because I was two or three, but that smell, that particular fragrance is lodged in my memory as warning signs are going off, right? Now that perfume might not mean anything to you and you and I could be standing next to each other in this room full of strangers. And I could say to you, Jeanette, this doesn't feel right. Something in this room doesn't feel right. And you might be having a different experience going, no, this room feels wonderful. I think there's some opportunity in this room. So you and I are having a very different experience of the same room from something that's happened in my past that I can't even remember. So I guess this is a long way of me saying that when you can't take anything too personally because it's about the other person, it's not about you. I had a coach who used to tell me that many times as I would recount situations that would happen when I was uh-huh. in corporate and she would say, it's not about you. It's mm. just not about you. It's about what you just said. Is that their pro- projection of what's going on inside? And she would yeah. always say, they're afraid of you. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're afraid of your brilliance. She would always tell me this. And I said, yeah. thank you. I appreciate that. But it doesn't feel good to be on the receiving end of whatever dysfunction they have going on in their minds. Okay. That's right. It doesn't, it doesn't, but it, it can get easier with the practice of reminding yourself in any given moment when someone is being horrible to remind yourself in that moment this is not about me this is actually their life and i actually now come to a place of compassion of oh wow i'm i feel for you i really feel for you this is your life you're being really nasty right now and that tells me that i'm not the only person you're nasty to you're probably like this 
risk to a lot of other people, which means you're carrying this around a lot of the time in your life. And that's sad. So I feel for you. That's the dialogue that's going through my head. I love that because I would always say, I understand he's doing the best that he can. (laughs) Yeah, with the resources available to them. What inspired you to become a conscious communication coach Mm. through your journey? How did you land in that space? Yeah, yeah. I look back over my life now. I'm in my early 50s now and I look back at all the different chapters and they all now weave together. I'm like, ah, okay, great. And so in no particular order, just as they come to me, chapters, I've always been a poet and a singer-songwriter since I was a teenager. I've always expressed myself through writing, whether it's poetry or spoken word or song. And that is a form of communication. So I love the expression. I love that. I was always fascinated in traveling to countries that were really different to the country that I grew up in. I grew up in a standard Western city, Melbourne, Australia. I grew up in a suburb, middle class, straightforward. I was always really curious to get to the countries that were so different to mine, different geographically and culturally and religiously different. And what I was actually fascinated about was two things. One was nature. I love, I'm a nature lover. So going to the Himalayan mountains or to the rainforests or to the beaches or wherever. But the other fascination I had was immersing myself in these foreign cultures and finding a way to connect with the people when we couldn't speak the same language. How can we connect? I was always fascinated with that connection piece, which is communication. And so now that all makes sense to me. And then working as a coach and living as a person through relationship in my marriage, I was a terrible communicator, but I was great at communicating in the corporate job. But then I'd go home and with my wife, as soon as I'd get emotional or frustrated, my communication ability would just collapse. (laughs) Oh, And I found that really fascinating. I'm like, why can I not communicate how I'm feeling right now? And then also I've been running my own coaching practice for 10 years now. And it just became really apparent to me that as people working together, whether it's in a romantic relationship or in a a business setting, quite often, in in fact, mostly when we come unstuck, it's in miscommunication. You know, you've got two people in a relationship, they actually love each other, but they're fighting all the time because they're just misunderstanding each other. They're miscommunicating. Or in an organization, say, for example, interdepartmentally, you've got the sales department and the accounting department, and they're fighting with their missing each other. And they forget that they're actually both working for the same organization with the same higher purpose, the same goals, visions, and values, but they're just miscommunicating. So I was watching all of this miscommunication and I still do. I see it all the time. And I thought, you know what, if we could get better at communication, the world would be a better place. In my corporate walk in the departments, we all have the same goal, but depending on the hierarchy or depending on the agenda, there was a lot of miscommunication and it seemed more of a power struggle than anything else. Let me come up with the best idea and then let's actually put our stamp on that idea and let's run with that idea. And we're like, we have ideas too. How about entertaining both ideas? But it seemed to be more of a power struggle after a while. Can you talk a little bit about the role of active listening as it plays into communication? Yeah. So the word communication comes from the Latin noun communicatio, which means a sharing, like we said earlier in this conversation, and the Latin verb communicare, which means to make common that that's communication to make common and when we trace back over the evolution of us as a species communication was pivotal to our survival we had to figure out how to communicate so that we could work together and create societies communities to survive together we need each other we need each other us humans and to be able to work together we have to be able to communicate and if communicating is a sharing and to make something common then you got to be listening. It's not a telling. 
communication is not a telling. It's people coming to a common understanding on something. And for anything to work, whether it's an organization or a department within an organization or a team within a department or for a, a marriage or for a family or for anything to work, we need to be able to communicate. And so active listening is, I'm going to say, it's as important as the ability to actually express yourself, but arguably maybe more important. Maybe the listening is more important than the seeking to understand. What you were talking about, Jeanette, just before with the power struggle in the corporate world and people wanting their idea to be the one that moves forward and people almost climbing on top of each other to be dominant and succeed in this world, it's all ego. It's all, I'm separate from you and I need to win, which is part of this patriarchal structure, again, which is I think needs to change. And the patriarchy, we're all in the patriarchy. This is not a gender thing. This is, we're all in it. And it's a dominance thing. Men try and dominate each other. Men try and dominate women to succeed in the corporate world, have to try and dominate each other as well. But it's all this patriarchal structure that needs to change. And it's very egotistical. It's very, it's all about me. And that's, that's dysfunctional. We're going to get Absolutely. better results. When we work together, we get better results. We can harness the power of diversity. So if we're sitting around a table, you and I, and a group of other people, and we're coming together to workshop and brainstorm and try and come up with some solutions to a problem, we're going to come up with much better solutions if we can listen to each other and incorporate everyone's point of view. And we're going to get a much better solution than just one person coming in and saying, this is what we're doing. No doubt. As far mm. as communication in relationship, because you brought that up and you talk about it in your book, what are some of the practices individuals can use to, first of all, assess whether or not they have the opportunity or room for improvement in their communication? So have an awareness of, I communicate best in these type of environments or what have you. What can I do to improve that in communication mm. to either a partner or children, or in your life? I think if we work on self-management, the ability to manage our physiological state, our emotional, mental, psychological state of being, if we can keep developing the ability to be the driver of our own bus, i.e. if you're in communication with your partner and it's getting emotional and you're disagreeing on something, if you have the ability, if you can develop the ability to take a breath, pause, and become present for your partner, to lean into the love and the connection and really seek to understand, like we were saying before, it does wonders for the relationship. And that takes practice. It does. And for me, the practice of mindfulness meditation has been pivotal to getting better at being the driver of my own bus, so to speak. Emotions are important, obviously. Emotions are a really important part of being human. However, sometimes we get stuck. We can get stuck in an emotional mental looping and it's hard to get out of and then we end up miscommunicating and walking away from a situation especially with our loved one going oh that didn't work <laughs> i really made a mess of that so the ability to acknowledge the way i'm feeling and to allow that to be and to pause and breathe and let it just soften a little bit and then to let go of the need to defend my idea just soften surrender a little bit and lean in so to speak to the relationship that can really help. And in the business environment, what recommendations would you have for communication within the business environment? Again, develop self-management, self-awareness. Be aware that when you're in a boardroom or a meeting room and you are designing a strategy for a way forward and you have an idea on how you think it should be and someone in your team has a different idea on how they think it should be. 
be aware of when you start to hold on too tightly to the way you think things should be. Just be aware of that. Loosen your grip. This is an internal dialogue. You notice you're in the room, you're getting very defensive around the way you think this strategy should go and then go, oh, notice to yourself, wow, I'm getting really quite emotional and defensive about this right now. Maybe I can just soften, just loosen my grip a little bit on the way I think things should be. Now, this is the internal dialogue. I don't necessarily need to agree with them. It's fine. But my energy now can just soften and open. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I am enjoying this book. And you might want to consider a new edition that says for thoughtful men and women. (laughs) By the way, first of all, I just want to say, Jeanette, thank you so much for actually taking the time to read it. I go on a lot of podcasts and I don't have any expectations. I'm just here to have conversations that I think are important to have, but not many podcast hosts actually read the book. So I just want to say thank you. That's really lovely of you. And I was writing the book for everybody. It was just the art of conscious communication. That was the book. And then I got a book writing mentor and I'd already started the manuscript and I gave it to her and she said, I'm loving it. It's great. She said, I think you need to pick a niche. You know, you need to pick a group of people to write for. And I went, oh, she said, it's too broad. I was like, oh, okay. And she said, do you know what? I think men need this book. She was my mentor. And I said, okay, I'll write it for men. (laughs) So I wrote it for men, but it's for everybody. It really is. Do you know, I had such a lovely message a few months ago, a woman somewhere around the world emailed me and she said, Jem, I just want to thank you for writing this book. I've read it and it's going to help me be a better mum for my sons. Yeah, that's powerful right there. That just... That just melted my heart, you know, that because I wrote the book to actually hopefully help people. I didn't write the book to get rich and famous. I wrote the book to help. And so when it helps someone, then oh, I just, that's great for me. Now, I do believe there definitely is a place in everyone's bookshelf with this book. Honestly, oh, it's just very heartfelt, very straightforward. And I like the fact that you're writing it from a perspective of your personal experience. Mm. I also appreciate the fact that you bring in other people like the late Stephen Covey, as well yeah. as Brian Katie. And you're not trying to position yourself as to know all things. You bring no. in these other thought leaders who yeah. have impacted your life and you found value in how they positioned their, their perspectives and thoughts. So yeah. that I definitely appreciate as well. Thank you. I also intentionally, I'm very vulnerable in the book and I share some deeply personal stories. And I did that intentionally. The reason that I wanted to do that is because I wanted to let other people know and especially men, because men keep all this stuff to themselves. Women are, and again, I'm generalizing, but generally speaking, women are more expressive and share and talk more about stuff. Whereas men, generally speaking, men tend to keep it all bottled up and don't talk about it because that's a sign of weakness. And there's a lot of men that struggle and they suffer secretly in silence with their own anxiety and their own worries. And so I wanted to give other people permission to know they're not to go, oh, wow, Jem suffered of that. I also have my version of that. I'm not alone. And to encourage people to share and talk, find someone to talk with. Suicide is just such a sad state for people to have to eventually get to where they feel that they're so alone and there's no one they can talk to. So they have to take their life. And that's really sad. So if you're feeling that you're struggling or suffering, please try and find someone to talk to. And another sad thing about it, I know this is a bit of a tangent that we're going on, but there's a large percentage, I can't remember exactly what it is, but most people who attempt suicide and are not successful, who live through it and get through that period of their life, 
never try it again. They go and live on the full life. There's a large percentage of people that are in a such a low place, but if they could just get through that, they would be okay. And I also think that through all of the COVID years with the isolation and people being forced to live in isolation and locked in their homes created massive rates of depression and anxiety and suicide went up in the countries where people were really locked and isolated. And that just goes to show that we do need connection. We need love and connection. We need to have connection with other people. And how do we do that? Communication. We need communication and communication can be a hug. It doesn't need to be verbal. But when we were told that we couldn't hug each other, I don't know about you, but I love hugging the people that are close to me. And when we weren't allowed to hug, that was big. You yeah. learn to adapt and I'm still a bit cautious, still a bit yeah. cautious. And look, it's funny, the older I get, the more introvert I get. And and my partner and I, we love our time alone. And so the lockdowns for us, it was different for us. We loved it. That just the two of us lock in. And if we had the teenagers with us, just lock in. And yeah, we quite enjoyed it. Yeah, we live down the coast. We live on a farm, on a sheep farm, and we live by the ocean and we surf. That's our pastime. And we could still surf. We could still ride our mountain bikes all around, surrounded by nature. So we were very lucky down here. We're an hour and a half away from the city. It was really more friends and family who live in the city and especially people who live in apartments. They had to spend most of their time stuck in an apartment. It wasn't pretty. Yeah, I understand different environments and that caused a lot of frustration. I'm glad that things are opening up a bit, but I'm still a bit cautious. I have definitely enjoyed our time together and I will update the show notes with ways to contact you through social media and how to acquire your lovely book. It has got some great information in it as well. The title of Jem's book is The Art of Conscious Communication with Thoughtful Men and Women. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> It's been great. I'll let you know if I have any other thoughts about what I've read as well. If you ever want me back on your show, I would be honored. It's been a really lovely conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Chapter Experience. If you have already subscribed, rated, and left a review, or shared this podcast with a friend, many, many thanks. For questions, comments, or feedback, reach out to me at Jeanette Lissett at nextchapterexperience.com. We'll be back with more conversations. So until then, keep that fire burning.